Lord God, Heavenly Father, bless your word to our hearts this evening and every evening. We ask in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Probably one of the most common objections to the Christian faith can be summed up in one word. And that word is exclusivity. Exclusivity. Exclusivity means that we Christians believe that our religion is the truth and that every other religious claim that contradicts a Christian religious claim is false. That offends people. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not a way, but the way. And that offends some people. However, every religion makes the same claim. Point number one in your outline, in your worship bulletin, all truth claims are necessarily exclusive. Hinduism makes truth claims that exclude Christian truth. The law of karma, for example, that contradicts salvation by grace. Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, they all make truth claims that are incompatible with Christianity. Even the claim, there is no truth, is itself an exclusive claim because it excludes those who believe there is truth. And the claim there is no absolute truth is itself an absolute claim and it excludes other claims. It excludes those who believe that there is absolute truth. And absolute truth is something that's true for all people in all places at all times. Letter A, all religions make exclusive claims and so do all people. If you believe something is right, it's only because you believe there's something opposite that you would call wrong. One of the most common views of religion, it began in the East, but it's become very current in the West, is the parable of the blind men and the elephant. And many of you have heard that. You've got an elephant, and there's several blind men, and they're feeling different parts of the elephant, you see. And, and one man is in the front, he feels the trunk, and he says, well, I think the elephant is like a snake. And another man is feeling the side of the elephant, and he says, well, I think the elephant is, is it's like a wall. And another man's feeling the tail, and he says, no, the elephant's like a rope. And those who tell the parable want you to believe that all religions are really the same, all steeples point up, and that all of us just have our own particular view of a greater truth. All of us just see part of the elephant, you see. But those who make this claim claim that they see the entire elephant, which none of us are able to see. They make a claim to truth that they would exclude us from. You know, we just see part of it, but they see the whole thing. 
You see, everyone is exclusive in their beliefs. It's not just Christians. So, letter B, which religion is the most inclusive? And I've left kind of a, a long line for you to write if you're taking notes. It, it is this. It is justification by grace through faith. That is the most inclusive religion you'll find, that anyone will find. That is justification, meaning we're declared righteous now through faith in Jesus Christ apart from the works of the law. And that's all inclusive for humanity because point number one, it doesn't depend on your performance or your achievement. For all have sinned, Paul writes, that's, that's all inclusive. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all in the same boat. And we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And then letter two, grace is exclusive of works. Paul makes that very clear. If it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So, to sum up the gospel, Christ died for sinners. You qualify. I qualify. This is the only way people can be saved and be assured of salvation. That's justification by grace through faith. So, Roman numeral 2 as Christians, we bear this burden of truth. And I call it a burden of truth because this truth is opposed in the world. It always has been. The world, letter A, opposes truth and therefore it opposes us. John writes in chapter 3 that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. You see, if your deeds are evil, you don't want the light shining on it. You don't want it to be exposed. Jesus said in John 15, if the world hates you, please know that it hated me first. See, we're related, in other words. And I cite Acts 28. Uh, St. Paul has finally arrived in Rome. He's under house arrest, and he sends out a message to the leaders of the synagogues in Rome. Please come and listen to what I have to say. And he, he preaches the gospel to them. And this is what the Jews listening to him said. They said, we know that everywhere this faith is spoken against. You see, the truth is opposed. There is opposition to you and to me. That's number two. We are of the truth. We belong to it. Jesus said, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. You've been begotten by the word of truth. You belong to the truth. And so when the world opposes what we believe, we really ought to take it personally because they are opposing what we are, not just what we say. We're of the truth. And this truth sets us apart from others. That's what holiness is. That's what sanctification is. It's simply this. It's being set apart for the work of the Lord. It's a status that we're given. 
Jesus said, they, meaning you and I, are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You see, our ultimate allegiance, this is why the world opposes us, our ultimate allegiance is not to Caesar. Now, we, we obey the government, you see, but our ultimate allegiance is to the Lord. And the early Christians suffered because of that. They would not offer sacrifice to Caesar, and so they were considered enemies of the state, and they were put to death. The truth was very personal for them. The world's opposition to truth is opposition to you. It is opposition to me. And, and if you believe any differently, I think you've got your head in the sand. Uh, when you, you can't listen to the media today without seeing and hearing Christians being portrayed as extremists and as hypocrites, as uh, wackos. That's how we're portrayed in the media. We're, we're unbalanced, unstable people. The elites in our culture do not see us as any benefit to society. We are viewed as an impediment to progress, you see. We're, we're in the way of progress. And elsewhere in the world, it's even worse. It's much, much worse. Christianity in the Middle East, for example, is almost extinct. You know, we invaded Iraq, created a vacuum for ISIS. There's virtually almost no Christians left in what is now Iraq. It's devoid of Christianity. And, you know, this is, this is not a region of the world where Christianity was imported and it can be viewed as some sort of a Western import. It's not that at all. This is where it began. And it's almost extinct there throughout the Middle East. In 2016 alone, 600 million Christians were prevented from practicing their faith. 600 million. That's almost twice the population of the United States. That's a fourth of the Christians on earth. Christianity, year after year, is the most persecuted faith on earth. And point number three, we experience cultural pressure, we experience familial pressure to neglect or even to deny the gospel. There's pressure on pastors, on parishioners, both. I can recall being a pastor in Texas and one of our members passed away and um, his physician was uh, a Jewish man, I think probably the only Jewish man in Stephenville, Texas, uh, Dr. Nathan Cedars, very highly respected. And it was known that Dr. Cedars was coming to Amos Hagen's funeral. And people, some people in my congregation were actually wondering if I would modify the sermon, kind of water it down, make it less Christ-centered, because Dr. Cedars would be there. And it hurt my feelings that they thought that. I mean, what would Dr. Cedars think if we as a congregation somehow altered, diluted the message because of the audience? 
How can you respect that? How could you live, much less die, for a faith like that? You wouldn't, and I wouldn't blame you. But the pressure's there, the expectation's there. Maybe he'll do that, maybe he should. You see, that I think that's the underlying motivation. Maybe he should. Point B, this is why we shouldn't. The world needs the gospel and it needs you to remain faithful to it. And you know, First Peter, like really all of the epistles are written to people who are suffering. And Peter writes this in, in chapter four. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? It's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. My friends, the pressure that we experience from the world, I firmly believe it is God's way of calling us to repent, to repent of our sins of spiritual apathy and spiritual indifference. You see, for too long, the schools, the government, the media, they've done our work for us. For too long, I remember growing up, there were still movies that would be very uh, supportive of the Christian faith. Uh, television programs were, were you know, they, they wouldn't criticize the church. See, we occupied a favorable position, a privileged position in society. We don't anymore. We don't anymore. And so the pressure is on. The pressure is on to take a step back and to water down the message to abandon the truth, but it's the only truth that saves. And God is telling us, no, this is the time to be firm. This is the time when you need to remember the world needs you now more than ever. No one else is going to support this message. No one else is going to proclaim it but you and me. That's why we're here. That's why we're needed now more than ever. The Lord is calling us to wake up and to take a firm stand in the faith. Why? Because the world needs us to be faithful so that the world itself might become faithful in Christ. There's no other way. So Roman numeral three, Christ will vindicate us at his return. And on the cover of your bulletin, there's the picture there of the sheep and the goats, and it, it has sort of an angel as the central figure and Christ above the angel. But there's the separation taking place. You see now, and, and this is really um, portrayed really beautifully in the parable of the weeds and the wheat in Matthew 13, and I cite that uh, under Roman numeral number three, where uh, the master uh, sows the good seed and at night the enemy comes and sows the weeds and the two are growing up together and the servants come to the master and they say look uh, an enemy's done this what are we going to do about it and the master very logically very spiritually aware he says no you let them grow together don't uproot them the roots are intertwined you see you'll damage the wheat and so now is a time of grace, not only for the wheat to continue its growth and its fruitfulness, but also a time for the weeds themselves to repent and by God's grace become wheat. But the day's coming when that separation will occur. The harvest will begin. And there will be a separation. 
Letter A, we are God's children now. We're justified in Christ, declared right in his sight. But our status is hidden. It's hidden under the cross. It's hidden under suffering, under the contempt that the world holds us in. We're privileged people, but we don't look privileged. We bear a cross. The shame of Christ, we bear his cross. Point B, our vindication will be public. It will be the public revelation of our justification. I like the way David puts it in Psalm 23, verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You know, someday those individuals who mocked us, who viewed us with contempt, and thought us not worth their time or their consideration, they will behold the Lord himself preparing a table before you and me. That's our Lord. That's the honor that we will share. And I like the way Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8. The sufferings of the present are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now what is glory? Biblically speaking, what is glory? Glory is righteousness made visible. It is holiness made visible. That's what glory is. You see, today, we believe in the righteousness that we've been given. We don't see it, but we believe in it. We believe that we are righteous, even though we don't look any different than anyone going up and down Central Avenue. We believe in our righteousness through the blood of Christ, through faith in Him. Today, we hear it, of it, and we believe it. In that day, we will see it. In that day, it will be visible, not only to us, that glory, but to all on the last day. That's the day we look forward to. And by the grace of God, it cannot come too soon. But while it is yet today, we bear witness to the world, and we dare not back down from that witness. The world needs you. The world needs me. The world needs this good news, the truth. The Greek word, aletheia, meaning truth, it's that which corresponds to reality. It's what reflects reality. The reality is we're sinners. The reality is we all fall short of the glory of God. The reality is we cannot save ourselves. Every other false religion out there is a means of self-salvation. They don't work. This is the only one that accomplishes God's purpose for you and me, and that's forgiveness and righteousness. That's the truth. That reflects reality. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.